everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Coast Range Radio, a radio program of the Coast Range Association. My name is Andrew. Have you been enjoying the show or have some questions? Send me an email at andrew at coastrange.org. To hear past episodes, visit coastrange.org slash coastrangeradio. You can also listen to Coast Range Radio wherever you find your podcasts. On this episode, we interview Chuck Willer. Chuck is the executive director of the Coast Range Association, and in this episode, we discuss Chuck's work on climate change and the role Oregon's industrial forests play in a Green New Deal transition to a carbon-free society. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for joining us on Coast Range Radio. Pleasure to be here, Andrew. Chuck, this is uh, a really important topic. It's something that the organization has been focusing on for um, the last year and in the last several months this summer, we've been getting really deep into this topic, the Green New Deal and Oregon's forests. And uh, I think it's a timely and inspiring uh, moment to be getting this information out there. It's, there's a broad movement around the Green New Deal. And, uh, you know, you've done a lot of research. You've, you've uh, followed a lot of really important thinkers on this topic. And I was hoping that you would be able to describe the Green New Deal uh, to folks who are listening who maybe have heard of it but don't really understand. You know, there's that term is thrown around a lot in the progressive circles um, in Oregon and across the country. And I think that there's often sometimes some confusion of what we're talking about. You know, there's, you know, say an Oregon Green New Deal, maybe the state's going to invest in protecting forests. But I think it goes a lot deeper than that. What is what is the national understanding or, or your understanding by the, you know, the the leaders in this topic of what a Green New Deal is and how it kind of started off with H.R. 109? What is a Green New Deal? People are all over the map on what a Green New Deal means. On the one hand, uh, it's a set of words that represents, I guess, anyone's fairly rapid and thorough uh, transformation of U.S the U.S. economy and infrastructure to uh, away from carbon fossil fuel energies to a a non-carbon based, non-fossil fuel based economy. That's fairly vague. uh, And there's all kinds of strategies and ideas floating around at that end of the spectrum. What I, what I believe uh, is the strategy that should be taken is to do a careful read of what House Resolution 109 says, and then think through or work out uh, how that would apply to our landscape, our state. A Green New Deal is only going to occur uh, under the sponsorship or the leadership of the federal government for reasons that uh, I think we've explored before. Uh, monetary reasons, regulatory reasons, the fact that the federal government basically has the authority over most commerce relations and money. So it's it's a national, and plus transforming, you can't just transform a place. The transformation has to occur nationally. That kind of federal-led national mobilization addressing the full suit of uh, elements necessary to be transformed, housing, transportation, energy production, et cetera, uh, industrial, the, the whole industrial infrastructure, um, it has to occur at a national level. It's just a flurry 
of uh, activity, the time frame given, I think in 109 and others, what people talk about is 10 years. That's somewhat related to the fact that A, something like that takes 10 or more years. And two, we're racing against time on the drawdown of the carbon budget where so much carbon uh, dioxide and other uh, greenhouse gases are put into the atmosphere that we reach certain tipping points and may end up in runaway global warming and Lord knows what. So uh, just the nature of the beast, so to speak, this transformation uh, and the carbon budget drawdown or using up is driving the time frame. Uh, that being said, we have to appreciate the national an a national mobilization, which every time that's brought up, it's mentioned equivalent to something like occurred during World War II. We're talking all hands on deck, a full court press. Everything has to be reconfigured and changed. The Green New Deal uh, describes those ambitious goals, sets a target of. Uh, uh, net zero carbon by 2050, which many think is too, is not enough. Zero carbon by 2050, plus a substantial drawdown of carbon in sequestration is, uh, the scientists will tell you, is part of it. That's the kind of carbon technics, economics, economy end of it. But the Green New Deal also uh, wants to address, has to address, the legacy uh, of race in this country, inequality, class, and all kinds of issues uh, that the New Deal did not. And so the Green New Deal obviously takes its name from the New, the new Deal, the 1930s era, era rebuilding of so much of the United States, creating new forms of organization, uh, and, and new uh, social enterprise as seen in many uh, the communication and electrical uh, co-ops that exist, et cetera. The Green New Deal wants to deal with that legacy. And, and of course, here we are today, uh, the legacy of uh, racial injustice, racism is on the front page. It's on the front page every day. It's a, it's a, it's a clear, and present issue as clear and as present as the climate crisis. So the Green New Deal melds those two needs, those two problems to be solved, uh, justice, equity, uh, and the transformation of the economy. It is so much easier to address chronic long-term social issues when you're rebuilding the house. You know, everything kind of has to change anyway. Why not have a change for the better in a way that works for all people and not just some of the people? So um, of specific interest and in something that you're working on right now is um, describing how forests in Western Oregon play into this idea of a National Green New Deal. Something we say regularly um, in our communications is that these wet forests in the Pacific Northwest, the coast range forests are some of the best in the world per acre at storing carbon. Can you dive a little bit into the the forest piece and how it interconnects with all these other issues, the justice issues, and, and some of these ideas that you're putting together for how 
uh, a Green New Deal can uh, this this forward vision on a Green New Deal and these forests? Well, fortunately, I mean the two forest we've got three forest components in the uh, Western Oregon. We have public lands mostly made up of federal ownership. It's broken between Bureau of Land, ONC type lands, and the Forest Service. So if you take public lands and set them aside, uh, we can talk about Northwest Forest Plan, the new planning processes that will be unfolding, the just completed uh, BLM plan. Okay, that's that's one component. It's like half the, a little bit, almost half the landscape. And then we have... Uh, Private forest and private agriculture, uh, the main valleys are agricultural, and then the forest makes up all the rolling hills and mountains east and west of the, of the uh, Willamette Valley, Rogue Valley, uh, Umpqua Valley. So those landscapes, that forested landscape, as our listeners would well know, uh, is one of the most productive in the world. It grows trees. It used to be a landscape of very large forests. And uh, today, as we've talked about for the past three years, and it's now kind of coming into broad public awareness, uh, it's controlled by a few large industrial corporate owners, uh, most of which are beholden to Wall Street interests. They manage on, uh, on an intensive uh, regime small plantation forestry, uh, fairly quick cutting, lost productivity, uh, very overloaded with a road network. All the downside that occurs from this intensive forestry uh, plays out on half the forest estate. And uh, those lands are generally the most fertile for forest growth. So even though the feds might own half and the industrials own 40%, uh, the industrial forest estate is, if you just adjusted those acres by productivity, would be larger than the federal ownership. A lot of the federal ownership is at higher elevation. The trees grow very slow. Uh, so, and a lot of it's just rock and ice uh, when you get really high. So, uh, uh, the actions down on the uh, lower private industrial lands, and that's where there used to be the massive big forests. And uh, reestablishing, uh, you know, the, one of the four pillars of the climate solution is bringing carbon out of the atmosphere, building up those forests to sequester carbon is the goal that I think everyone would agree that's, that would be a good thing. Even the political leaders in Salem appreciate it. Uh, the timber companies understand it, okay, and they have their response. But if we can grow those forests bigger, grow them larger, we can sequester millions and millions of tons of atmospheric carbon. And uh, that would be our Oregon contribution to the global problem along with moving away from a fossil fuel economy, uh, which has to happen also. So there's, you know, you know, you're talking about this private estate, private forest land estate, and there's these different pathways that we can kind of envision moving forward and how to store carbon on the landscape. 
Um, and I think you have a really, really insightful vision for how those different pathways play out. Um, do you want to get into some of those, you know, the regulation, taxation, um, outright purchasing of carbon, a land reform message? What are some of your thoughts on these different uh, opportunities and how they play into a Green New Deal and the mandate for a just transition? Well, I think that's uh, I think that's the key question when you start thinking about okay, uh, what would a transformation for Oregon forests look like? Obviously, uh, the buildup of carbon is the goal. No one disputes that. How do you get there? Now, uh, given uh, the current ownership, you could get there in one of three ways. Uh, you could regulate it and just require uh, grow trees longer. There are other regulatory things that the state could do. At all points, the industry will resist, but at some point they might actually have a legal claim that there's some sort of taking occurring. And so the regulatory envelope has a limit to it. Uh, Plus, uh, as far as social justice, a just transition goes, uh, regulating down harvest spreads the pain across the company. I mean, uh, if you have less harvest, I guess the billionaires are getting less dividends or profits. Uh, Management uh, has got less to do. There might be a few managers that are let go. There's certainly less work on the landscape uh, as far as logging goes, so loggers will be let go. And uh, the reforestation workforce of Mexican and Central American Uh, indigenous people uh, would have less work to do, absent any alternative program of work. So that is a distribution of pain that's not equal. A big investor who gets uh, $900,000 instead of a million-dollar dividend check is a lot different than Hispanic workers who are just out of luck and out of a job. We'd have to be concerned about just a regulatory, straightforward approach outside of the sheer political problem it poses. The second way is to uh, use taxation to encourage something or punish something. It, it's almost uh, it's almost like a regulatory approach, except it provides incentives and disincentives for changing your forest management. And it's probably, it's no different than really just outright paying the companies for their lost opportunity cost of growing uh, timber as a financial uh, commodity, which uh, requires them to cut it fairly early. So if we just paid them the lost opportunity uh, cost to extend the rotation, now that to me is the worst case scenario. Now, the reason it's worse from a just transition is if you pay them to do good, that means the millionaire and billionaire investors get all their money. Uh, Corporate management gets all their bonus. And then the farther down the chain, workers lose their job. I don't, that's not the way I think we should go. Uh, So uh, taxation, taxation, I'm not sure exactly how it would play out. I imagine it would be similar to outright regulation as far as the pain would be spread across the enterprise. Uh, just paying them makes it, keeps the investors whole and puts people out of work. 
le uh, lessens the money into the local uh, communities. So the fourth strategy, which I think is the way to go, is land reform, where, and you got to remember, all, most of these companies that own these forest lands are in the business uh, of timber. Some of them are in the business of value added then with the timber or exporting it. And they're in the business of selling land. They explicitly sell any land uh, that warrants being sold. So they're very, they're very comfortable. Their investors are comfortable with the idea, oh, we sell land. Purchasing the land and reconfiguring it under new, more equitable enterprise where local communities, the workforce, and other populations are folded into the benefit of the enterprise is really the way to go. It's a it is the essence of a just transition and our ability to uh, increase carbon sequestration rate, I think would be maximum under that regime because the benefit of the remaining forestry plus all the other rest restoration activities that could go on locally would, would be compensate for any lost timber revenue, compensate at the level of communities and workers. It doesn't, comp I mean, the, the investors and top management are compensated up front with a buyout. But after that, the enterprise that remains would uh, benefit the local community so much that whatever, whatever shortfall occurs from the previous timbering would be made up for by everyone getting a fair and equitable share. That's the path forward. I don't understand why people, uh, why we have a hard time convincing colleagues uh, that this just makes sense. And uh, well, one of the reasons might be is that it's so far outside of today's political frame that's been constructed by power. Well, we have to look back a little more in history and realize that social benefit enterprises all around us. I Coast Range Association banks at a credit union. I personally bank at a credit union. I buy food at a food co-op. Uh, I, I have been a member of a telephone co-op on the coast. Power on the coast is supplied by public utility districts. You know, I mean, they are two cents a kilowatt. I mean, uh, cheaper than in the valley where you buy your power from private uh, company, investor companies. Uh, that's, that's a substantial cost saving. Uh, so these kinds of social forms of ownership, social forms of management are all around us. They're part of the American tradition. Uh, I just think uh, a lot of people forget about them. They're not talked about by political leaders. Uh, they're not talked up by political leaders. They're not bragged about as a legacy of uh, progressive eras in the past. We have to think creatively about forests going forward, forest enterprise and purpose. So, you know, people, uh, many people I know, many of our colleagues are all upset about forest practices in some fashion, and they want to stop a practice. And, uh, you know, the pushback from the industry is uh, total, you know. So 
Forest practices are an outcome of the forest management strategy. The forest management strategy is an outcome of the nature of the enterprise in, that's doing the timber harvesting, that's doing the forestry. And the nature of the enterprise that's on the land today is Wall Street financial forest enterprise. That's why the management looks the way it does. And that's why these practices, the things that people see that freak them out, occur. Well, that whole enterprise is only possible because it owns land. It controls land. And if you tell me that it would be better to engage this canary-eating cat of an industry and then watch it closely for the next 20, 30, 40 years and maintain control over that canary-eating cat animated by the power of Wall Street than it would be to do a one-time purchase of significant amounts of forest land and be done with it. Now, it could be that a small change in Salem for some forestry reform is easier than buying some land or buying a lot of land, but they like to sell land. It's the question is, why don't we have a solution that makes sense over the long-term is robust to the emergency of serious carbon sequestration and would work in perpetuity, just like our public utility districts, just like the telephone co-ops, just like the credit unions. Social purpose enterprise has never been denigrated by the fools at the University of Chicago Economics Department, if you might have noticed. It is as efficient and does service delivery not only as well as the private companies, the investor companies, it often does it better. Yeah, I, th I think that's it's a it's a really important vision, and I think tying it back to the Green New Deal and this national mobilization, we're talking about you know this land reform is is a really uh, just and uh, informed path forward that has a precedent. Um, it's not something that we're creating out of thin air. It's something that there's examples like you're saying all across the landscape. I think something that is unique, if through a Green New Deal investment in these forests, is Along with that uh, investment in that that transfer of ownership, there is a requirement for certain public benefits for that forest. You know, you get this land as a, you know, socially responsible in, uh, enterprise with requirements for carbon buildup and, uh, you know, social purpose. Well, look at what just happened in April with the, the uh, Pandemic Care Act from Congress. I think 500 and some billion dollars was made available for these uh, loans to businesses if they do, if they keep people on payroll. So at the end of the uh, period, if you can show 941s that showed up, we kept them on the payroll, the loans supposedly will be forgiven. Okay, it's just be the same thing. You get a grant or a loan or some financial arrangement to purchase large-scale amounts of forest land, and then 
you have to fulfill, probably through a, a working forest conservation easement, the terms of the financing, where if you, for the next 50 years, build up forest carbon, the uh, debt obligation will be forgiven. End of story. And uh, the benefit, the benefits and the focus on forest is to me, the smaller story, uh, the fact that a less intensive forestry would be good for streams, good for water quality, good for water flow, uh, good for this, good for that. That's the smaller story. A different kind of social benefit forestry would be good for people out in the rural areas. It'd be good for the workforce that's working the land now. And it would be a whole new way of life, a, a good way of life, coupled with the other transformations that the climate crisis are going to mandate. I'll note, uh, the timber industry is organized very specifically. It has the large, it has the investors at the top. It has the big corporate enterprise firm like Weyerhaeuser or whatever. And then below that is this world of subcontractors. They actually do the work. There are some Weyerhaeuser log trucks I see on the road. Most log trucks are independent contractors, either small firms with four or five, 10 trucks or sole proprietor trucks. And then with that is that Hispanic or that Mexican Central American reforestation workforce. They're the ones that replant clear the brush, do the hard work during cold months. And those three elements, these contractors, the contractor workforce for logging, hauling, yarding, and the reforestation workforce, all those folks are hurting currently. They're hurting as the corporate companies screw down ever harder on the contract provisions on the amount of work for the amount of money they're going to pay. Chuck, is there, you know, we're running out of time here. Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to make sure we hit before um, we get people excited and out uh, getting active in this, this work? A new forestry that has, that circulates wealth and income locally, coupled with a new energy system that increases electrical production locally with solar and wind, and a new agriculture in many of our depopulated valleys and current valleys that have enterprise in farming. The new agriculture, new energy, new forestry would reinvigorate the rural landscape in Oregon. It's waiting to happen. The fact that we could open up and resettle many small landowners, landholders, into the coast range depopulated areas uh, would be a great benefit. It would bring new thought, uh, new kinds of uh, creative people in agriculture, forestry, energy. Uh, this is this is a world that would be. Uh, this is an opportunity that we should all embrace. Time is of the essence. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Visit coastrange.org to learn more. Spread spread the word. Get you can. There's all sorts of details about this uh, work on our website. You can learn more 
and uh, join us, volunteer. We really appreciate everyone's uh, uh, supporting this and uh, helping this vision uh, become a reality for Oregon. Hey, Chuck, thank you so much for the time and for this really uh, important thought. Um, we look, I look forward to uh, further discussions on Coast Strange Radio. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll uh, see you next time.